Hi, my name is Dr. Paul Sadar and I'm a lecturer in physical theory at King's College London. Today I'm talking with my colleague, Dr. Robin Douglas, who's a reader in political theory also at King's College London in the Department of Political Economy. Robin has previously published many works on, in particular, 18th century political theory, including especially his book, Rousseau and Hobbes, Nature, Free Will and the Passions, which was published with Oxford University Press. Robin is currently putting the finishing touches to his book, Pride, Hypocrisy and Sociability, Burden Mandeville's Political Philosophy, which will be hopefully out with us within the next couple of years. And speaking here today with Robin, so that he can give us a sense of what that book is likely to involve. So hi, Robin. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me on. No problem. So could you just give us a quick sense of the main arguments of the new book on Mandeville? Yeah, of course. So I guess at the most general level, my argument is that we should take Mandeville seriously as a political philosopher. And there's a couple of dimensions to that. So one is that we should take him seriously as a philosopher at all. So this is sometimes denied. So for example, in David Runciman's book on political hypocrisy, there's a really excellent discussion of Mandeville. Uh, and Runciman discusses a few of the issues of Mandeville's argument. And then he kind of says, well, that Mandeville was not a political philosopher, but a polemicist and satirist of genius. It's dangerous to take what he has to say too literally or expect too much overall coherence from it. And this is a recurring point that comes up in Mandeville scholarship, that his that he writes in a kind of polemical, satirical way, and we shouldn't take him too seriously as a philosopher. So I want to push back quite strongly against this. Um, in part, that involves saying, well, it's a bit of a false dichotomy, right? He does write in a polemical, satirical way, but he also shows quite a lot of philosophical depth, at least in stages and parts of the work, and in particular, his most famous work is The Fable of the Bees. Um, it's published in different installments, if you like, and the second part or the second volume of the fable comes out in 1929, and that takes the form of lengthy philosophical dialogues. So I think there's a lot to kind of really get stuck into there, which merits taking Manville seriously as a philosopher. Then I guess more needs to be said about, well, what it means to think of him as a political philosopher. So the idea for which Mandeville is probably most remembered today is, is the idea captured in the notorious subtitle to the Fable of the Bees, Private Vices, Public Benefits. And this is most often understood as an economic thesis. So one example would be that the pursuit of luxury out of things like vanity and envy stimulates demand and economic growth and prosperity. And that's a way that private vices can be turned into public benefits. Now, I have relatively little to say about that. I focus instead in what I'm calling Mandeville's origins of sociability thesis. And so I guess a more precise argument that runs through the book is that Mandeville offers us one of, if not the most sophisticated defense of what I'm calling a pride-centered theory of sociability. So let me just unpack a couple of those terms because I want to offer a kind of sympathetic but not unequivocal defense of Mandeville's pride-based theory of sociability. So a lot of recent scholarship, your book included, of course, has shown the importance of debates around sociability for early modern European political thought. 
in, in very basic terms, the theory of sociability seeks to explain how and why humans come to associate together, uh, how they continue to live together in relatively uh, peaceful terms. And at least in Mandeville's case, but also for many other theorists at the time, the focus is on large scale political societies. And so my claim is, well, Mandeville sees pride as being absolutely central to understanding human sociability. Pride for Mandeville is to do with social esteem, it's to do with reputation and caring about how other people think of you. So Mandeville says that the true object of pride is the opinion of others. And so the idea here is we're strongly motivated to act in certain ways because we care about how other people think of us. So um, we, confer, we conform to societal norms because we desire other people's praise. We don't want to do things that will upset other people because we'll feel ashamed about this. And Manfield thinks this isn't the only thing, but it's absolutely central to ex understanding how human sociability works in large-scale political societies. And, and this is perhaps a final point I'll make about the general argument of the book. I do think it's important to keep a focus on this being pride for Mandeville. So pride is a term which, at least in kind of places with a strong Christian tradition, has certain negative connotations, certain negative moral connotations. And I think that's really crucial for Mandeville. Sometimes scholars deny this. Sometimes people think that Mandeville doesn't really see pride as a vice at all. But I push back quite strongly against that. I think if you if you find Mandeville's analysis of human nature plausible, and I do think there's a lot to it which is plausible, then there's something really quite unsettling about it. And I hope to bring that to light in, in the book. Fantastic. Thanks, Robin. So just building on that, and I know you haven't actually finished writing the book yet, but uh, could you give us a sense of what the structure of the book will be in a sort of chapter-by-chapter -chapter basis? Yeah, okay. So... So I, I imagine it will start with a fairly lengthy introduction in which I try to justify that broad approach I've just set out to taking Mandeville seriously as a political philosopher. And then after that, the, the book's broken down into two kind of general parts, if you like. So the first part is on what I'm calling the psychological origins of sociability. And then the second part's more on what I'm calling the historical origins of sociability. So in chapter one, I sketch out Mandeville analysis of human nature and his moral psychology, focusing on the place of pride, looking at how it interacts with other passions like shame and fear, thinking about the prominence of pride in Mandeville's later work where he draws a distinction between self-love and self-liking and thinking about how that changes or doesn't change actually, as I argue, the importance he accords to pride. So the first thing I do in that chapter is just really try to outline the main contours of Mandeville's moral psychology. And then in the second half of the chapter, I defend Mandeville against two lines of objection. So one line of objection is people who complain about what we now call psychological egoism. Uh, so especially people like Joseph Butler, David Hume in Mandeville's day who say, well, look, there's, there's problems with Mandeville's attempt to reduce everything to self-love. And I say, well, look, although those objections are quite compelling, much of what he wants to say about the importance of pride in, in explaining sociability goes through anyway, even if you find those objections compelling. And then I do something similar as well with a line of objection most 
famously associated with Adam Smith's distinction between the love of praise and the love of praiseworthiness, which is to say that Mandeville doesn't recognize the possibility of acting from praiseworthy motives irrespective of the praise that we might actually gain. And, and I say again, on one level, this is quite a fair criticism of Mandeville, but on another level, even if we accept Smith's point, I think a lot of what Mandeville wants to say about the, explana the explanatory prevalence of pride remains untouched by this line of criticism. So that's the, kind, that's the first chapter. Um, in chapter two, I move on to look at the moral status of pride in a bit more detail. So this idea that Mandeville genuinely does think that pride is a vice. And this involves looking at the differences between the first and second volumes of the fable, because there are a few scholars who think in the second volume of the fable, he's offering a morally neutral analysis of society. And that's a position I challenge. I also challenge certain lines of interpretation that think Mandeville's not really sincere in what he says about the vices and pride. He's trying to overturn the kind of prevalent morality of his day. Uh, and I push back quite strongly against that. And then in the second half of the chapter, I again move on to consider objections. So I look at David Hume's arguments for thinking that we shouldn't really think that pride is a vice at all. And I look at arguments which a number of his contemporaries raised, but perhaps most famously Archibald Campbell and Adam Smith again, which is that Mandeville conflates what we might think of as a morally neutral desire for esteem with uh, the vice of pride. Uh, and I, I argue that Again, there's something to these lines of criticism, but actually there's something which Mandeville sees, which is very important and which remains quite unsettling in the ways in which we desire social esteem. So he's right to see that there's something kind of morally unsettling about that. And I show that even though this is a, a way of looking at things which finds a lot of its inspiration from Augustinian theorists who see this as being characteristic of human nature's fallen state. Um, and you can read Manville's fitting quite well within that tradition, and a number of people have done so. I argue that you can look basically what Mandeville has to say about why this is morally unsettling can be it remains eminently plausible, even if you don't buy into the Augustinian theology at all, right? So it still makes sense, divorced of kind of theological commitments to original sin, for example. So that's the, that's chapter two. Uh, chapter three, which is the final one in the first part of the book, provides a detailed study of Mandeville's engagement with Anthony Ashley Cooper, the third Earl of Shaftesbury, on questions about hypocrisy, sociability and virtue. So in 1723, Mandeville publishes an expanded version of the you know, what we now think of as the first volume of the Fable of the Bees. And it's here that he first confronts Shaftesbury. And I think this is an important turning point in his philosophy. And so one of the things I'm doing in that chapter is just trying to work out just trying to piece together Mandeville's sort of response to Shaftesbury. I think it's quite interesting because I think some of the things he says against Shaftesbury pull his arguments in different directions. So I try to tease out the problems there and think about what that means for his understanding of, of virtue and his theory of sociability more generally. So that's the first part of the book. Now, the virtue of the first part of the book is that it's written. So I, I'm more comfortable saying what 
what I've covered in that. The second part of the book is yet to be written, so this will be a bit more sort of sketchy. Uh, so the second part of the book is on the historical origins of sociability, and I envisage this having two chapters. So in chapter four, I'll be looking at Mandeville's account of the early stages of the development of society out of what Mandeville calls savage families. And in particular, I'll be focusing on the role of the desire of dominion, which Mandeville himself sees as being an outgrowth of pride and how that plays out in different in the different stages by which society develops. One of my main targets in that chapter will be a debate that's occupied quite a few Mandeville scholars about whether or not he shifts between what's sometimes called a conspiratorial notion of the origins of society and morals to an evolutionary account. Some people think there's a big shift in Mandeville's view. Some people think that his references to wise lawgivers and politicians were only ever meant as metaphorical in the first place. I argue that that debate misses an awful lot that's really important in Mandeville. One of the things it misses is that Mandeville seeks to explain lots of different phenomena in different ways. And this debate sort of tends to assume that there's kind of one explanation explaining everything. And I want to tease out that Mandeville's, the subject of explanation shifts quite a lot for Mandeville in important ways. Um, and, and then look at the sort of early development of, of society in chapter four, and then that will lead me on in chapter five to look at more recent, for Mandeville anyway, for more recent European developments in terms of modern honor and commerce and the way that pride has developed in into, into notions of modern honor and politeness in more recent European history. And then, so they're the main chapters of the book as I currently envisage it. And then I guess I'll wrap up in the conclusion by taking, by stepping back a little bit and, and thinking again about, well, what does it mean to think of this as political philosophy? How does this differ from more traditional approaches to political philosophy and what's to be said for it? So that's the, that's the overall plan as I currently see it. Great, thanks very much. And um, so, what led you to write this book on Mandeville in the first place, and how does it fit with some of your previous work? Well, it doesn't. It doesn't follow on that directly from my previous work. I mean, there's, I guess there's a sense where if you're working on Rousseau a lot, then you should read Mandeville and they're interested in some similar questions. So that's probably how I first came to, to read Mandeville properly. When, when I joined King's College London in 2012, I put together a course which looks at debates about morals in what we might loosely term commercial society from Mandeville to Smith. So I've been teaching Mandeville for several years and he's a lot of fun to teach. And I think this is a book that very much arises out of my teaching. I hope it will be, it's not an introduction, but I hope it's the type of book that will be very accessible for undergraduate students who, who have only spent a week reading Mandeville and I hope it will also be of interest to obviously scholars who have spent a lot more time thinking about Mandeville. So it's written very much as something that will be helpful for students on the one hand. I think there's also, I always find Mandeville a little bit unsettling. I think if you really read Mandeville properly, then he should get under your skin. And I wanted to write something that draws out the reasons why I think he does or, 
or why he should get under your skin. So whenever I teach that course, I start with Mandeville and, you, and I'm in this very Mandevillian frame of mind. And then by the end of the course, we read Adam Smith's Theory of Moral Sentiments. And you think to yourself, actually, maybe it's not that bad. Maybe, you know, maybe human nature isn't quite as bleak as Mandeville presents it. And every time I go back to Mandeville again, I still have some of those underlying worries that even Smith can't dislodge. So I wanted to kind of draw, draw some of those things out. And especially, this is again something that comes out of of teaching really is that Mandeville is someone who I think resonates quite a lot with the way a lot of politics happens today. So there's something about a kind of Mandevillian disposition to politics that I think is quite worthwhile. I, don't, I certainly don't agree with everything Mandeville says, but one of the things that Mandeville's pushing back against is a view that the problems we face in the society of his day, but I think you can draw par parallels to the society of our day, are basically problems of moral corruption. The problem is that we're all sort of horribly morally corrupt, and that's leading to all sorts of political and social problems. And Mandeville doesn't deny the moral corruption claim, right? He doesn't deny that there are ways in which we're deeply vicious and problematic creatures. He just thinks that's the kind of necessary feature of living together on any large scale. And so the type of way of thinking about politics, which thinks we have to kind of morally purify people first before we're going to make any social or political progress, is one of Mandeville's main targets. And whenever I'm teaching this, students don't find it difficult to think about politics today, to think about especially politics on social media, and say, actually, it seems like the type of considerations that Mandeville is raising are, are, still, with us, are still with us now. So I kind of want to kind of tease out something uh, about what's worthwhile in this kind of Mandevillian disposition towards thinking about politics. That's great, thanks. Was there anything that you found particularly surprising or interesting when you were conducting the research for this book um, that you might not have expected to find before? Well, I guess on one level, I mean, there's a real danger of confirmation bias here, but I guess on one level, the more I'm reading Mandeville, the more I'm seeing new layers of depth. I mean, I think this probably happens with anything you spend a lot of time reading and rereading, but I have been surprised by just how much there is going on in Mandeville's thought, and I, I constantly see new things in his in his in his work which i hadn't seen before um which is very rewarding i don't think there's any kind of really particular sort of big findings that i've come across that i didn't that i wasn't already aware of one of the things i've been thinking about a lot at the moment i guess because i'm, I'm thinking about the fourth chapter of the book is the emphasis that Manfield places on the desire of dominion, I think it's very interesting. So one of the ways he frames the problem is he says, well, actually, we're all kind of born with a desire of dominion. We don't have a problem of explaining why it is that humans want to govern one another. The problem is explaining how it is we ever came to develop the capacity to govern other people effectively without it just all breaking down into war and fighting and things like that. And there's a certain way of thinking about the problems that political philosophy should be asking. And I guess on a crude reading, if you like, of the social contract tradition, which sees kind of states being an answer to kind of coordination problems and how we sort out problems that we would otherwise have. And I think Mandeville 
presents a very different way of thinking about big problems in politics and political theory, because for Mandeville, it's a lot more a case of, well, look, we've got people who want to dominate other people. And how is it that we ever come to find social arrangements where that can work out in relatively peaceful and stable ways? And this is something actually, which I think a lot of contemporary political science is probably a lot more attentive to, but political philosophers don't always give as much attention to as they should do, which is thinking about, if you like, the kind of the passions of the rulers, which is something that um, Manville has a lot to say about. Thanks, Robin. Just to finish up, this is a slightly unfair question I like to ask people. If it was up to you, how would you, uh, how would you hope the book would change people's perceptions in the research field? Um, what would you like to see people do differently as a result of reading your book? Okay, well, so, uh, I mean, at the most simple level, I think you know, I, I would like people to interpret or understand Mandeville a little bit differently as a result of reading it. Uh, one of the things, one of the things with Mandeville that he often says, and I take him quite seriously here, is that he wrote to, to humble other people's pride. And one of the consequences with spending a lot of time with Mandeville is it helps you to see through some of the pathologies of taking yourself and what you do too seriously. So I want to be careful not to make any too grandiose claims about how this is going to change things. I mean, in part, that's because I think it'll be stretching it to say there really is a, a, a burgeoning research field of Mandeville scholarship. But insofar as there are people who read and write about Mandeville, I hope they will read the book and I hope it will challenge some of the things that you, that they, they sometimes say about Mandeville and present him in a slightly different light. And I guess one thing perhaps to add to that is lots of people, again, yourself included here, have written about Mandeville in the context of writing broader stories about how ideas develop in, say, the 17th, 18th centuries, or perhaps even longer. And when you write those stories, one of the things that inevitably happens is that you have to simplify people a little bit. You have to take people as being representative of different positions, because then you can tell a kind of a story about how ideas develop over time. And that's, of course, a very valuable thing to do. I think one of the reasons why I'm drawn to often write about individual thinkers is because I think when you write about the individual thinkers, it inevitably complicates those stories. So the actual, you know, to, so getting Mandeville right as much as I can get Mandeville right will complicate some of the things that people want to say about the development of early modern European ideas. And that's not because people have got those stories wrong. It's probably because, if anything, the history of ideas is often the history of thinkers getting other thinkers wrong. And so when you're telling those stories, there's an element of that that always has to go into it. Whereas if you focus on, on just getting an individual thinker right for their own sake, then it will hopefully present a more complex and, and richer view of the thinker in question than you can do in those kind of longer term stories. So. So that's you. Know, if if people if people read this book and thought actually there's you know, there's a bit more going on here in Mandeville than I'd thought beforehand, then I would be I would be very happy. That's great. Thanks very much, Robin. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you very much for arranging this. It was good fun.